Hi, everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make and break your case. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Heimlich. And I'm John Risvold. And today we had the pleasure of talking with two attorneys who work at the Chicago office of Romanucci and Blandin, who are generally responsible for a lot of their class action and mass tort litigation, Dave Nyman and Bryce Hensley. And John, I know this is something you know a little bit about as well, and your firm does on a regular basis. So why don't you give us a little bit about what um, class action and mass tort litigation is all about? Sure. So with, uh, with class action and mass tort litigation, what you're seeing is an incident at, at some point where hundreds, maybe thousands of people are affected. Um, when you talk about class actions, it's that everybody's affected in the exact same way. There's commonality in terms of who the, the plaintiffs are and what their injuries are. I think of things like consumer fraud or um, privacy data, data breach issues, things like that. You see that in a, in a class action context where uh, a lawyer gets a group together um, and files a single lawsuit, uh, allowing everybody to recover. With a mass tort, it's uh, things like ovarian cancer with talc, uh, Johnson & Johnson talc, or Roundup, or in the case of my firm, uh, environmental litigation, like the sterogenics litigation that's going on in Cook County right now, which we talked about a lot in this, uh, this podcast. That is an incidence where uh, a lot of people have been affected by a certain uh, product or something that has caused uh, an injury to them, but their injuries are different. They're disparate. So each person has their own lawsuit instead of being a group class action lawsuit. And then all of those lawsuits are grouped into multi-district litigation. And so we've figured out in this country great processes for people to band together when they wouldn't otherwise have access to the courts and they wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity to seek justice for lots of reasons that we'll talk about uh, today. But these two processes are great ways for people to band together to get justice for their injuries or their wrongs. When you, these cases get consolidated, especially these, you know, mass tort, you know, these tal cases, the drug cases, the device cases, how do these things typically proceed? Because, you know, you obviously you can't try all of these cases at once. Are some cases picked and chosen to go to trial? So when, when uh, you're looking at a mass tort context, and we'll set aside a class action because a class case, um, you'll typically have a designated plaintiff as the lead plaintiff in a class case. And that would be the person who would be your plaintiff when you try the case. In a mass tort case, it's different. You're sort of jockeying for position. And the court, whichever district court judge is hearing and overseeing the multi-district litigation is going to appoint steering committees. It's in a steering committee for the plaintiffs, because often it's not just one firm has all of the tout cases. It's 50, 100 firms have tout cases, and they're all working together to try to get this litigation moving forward. So they usually appoint people that are very familiar with the process and that are very familiar with how this particular mass tort is going to move forward. And then what, what they do is a process of determining uh, bellwethers, bellwether trials. And the purpose of a bellwether trial is to essentially determine what a jury thinks the value of these cases should be on a spectrum. So there's lots of different ways that courts and litigants pick out bellwethers. Sometimes it's by injury. So if you have a cancer causing agent, you want to do all of the, you know, you want to pick one of the lung cancer cases and you want to pick one of the pancreatic cancer cases and one of the colon cancer cases and try those so that you know a jury thinks that 
somebody with lung cancer who is exposed to this product has a case value of X. Um, but it's not, it, it goes beyond that. I mean, you're seeing it now in the Roundup litigation and in, especially in the talc litigation where there's lots and lots of these trials that have gone on. And there have been some very, very large billion with a B dollar verdicts, um, but it still hasn't set a value or pushed Johnson & Johnson or any other defendant uh, toward a place where they want to try to settle all these cases to avoid endless trials. It's a fascinating process. It's one that uh, neither myself or my firm really gets involved in. We usually refer them to people who know what they're doing, like yourself and like Dave and Bryce, um, because it is really a, a specialization, even among plaintiffs' attorneys. You know, it's not something to be uh, dabbled in. It's really something that you need to commit an incredible amount of time and resources to in order to really uh, do justice for your clients and make sure that these cases uh, get get put in a way where they can get resolved with the rest of the class that you're dealing with. Yeah. When we were talking to, to Bryce and Dave, it was uh, listening to them was like hearing them build a separate firm inside of their already powerhouse firm. They're at a fantastic firm, downtown Chicago. And the way they described sort of the back of house, right? I used to wait tables in law school. So you got the front of the house where the waiters are, you get the back of the house where everything gets run. The back of the house in a law firm is the exact same way where, you know, we are the people litigating out in the front, but we also oftentimes have a lot of support from paralegals or secretaries or law clerks or whomever. And that's a lot of what you need to do mass tort litigation. You have to have a really great team of intake, case management, um, you know, back of the house kind of stuff. And the way they describe it was very interesting. But to your point, the way they describe it is also not something that a solo practitioner typically should be dabbling in or anybody should be dabbling in. This is something you have to dedicate a practice to and dedicate attorneys to. They were saying 90 plus, 95 plus percent of their practice is this aggregate litigation, this class or mass tort litigation. And they're not really doing a whole lot of anything else, which is uh, interesting because so many of the, the majority of my cases, and I'm sure the majority of your cases as well, are not multiple plaintiff cases. They're single plaintiff, single event cases. And so here you're talking about one event or maybe many, many events, but thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people, uh, depending on what the scenario is. Let's uh, talk a little bit about how these cases are defended. What kinds of things do you see that uh, defense attorneys do to either um, cut the class off or move the case to a more favorable jurisdiction where they think they can get a better result? There's a lot of things um, and it really runs the gamut, but what they had done in the past was sort of pick off some of the best plaintiffs approach, some of the best plaintiffs uh, potentially for the, you know, the class rep and say to them, all right, well, we'll settle with you, not the rest of the class. We'll settle this really, you know, high risk case and sort of disrupt everything else that's going on as everybody's jockeying for position. But uh, Bryce and Dave talked about the litigation in Las Vegas with the MGM shooting, um, which if anybody did not see resulted in, earlier in September, a $800 million settlement um, for, I, I believe 4,500 plaintiffs, but I could be wrong. But um, what they did in that case to try to keep it into a certain jurisdiction was MGM turned around and sued individual plaintiffs, countersued them in order to try to establish a federal court case where they could try to rely on 
um, some lesser known post 9-11 anti-terrorism federal law. Uh, and so the tactics are really bruising. They're very motion practice heavy. The last mass tort that I was involved in at my firm, we had over a dozen substantive motions, motions to dismiss, motions to bar, motion for this, motion for that. Um, it really, really comes down to a lot of very good writing, very good research, and very good advocacy all in one. You have to take great depositions, dig into the records and find the one or two line smoking guns that exist in those records, and then be able to take that and apply it to the law in a brief form and then argue that in front of judges. I mean, it is an intense, uh, intense process. I got to tell you, I learned a lot from listening to you guys. Like I said, it's a world I'm generally unfamiliar with and having, you know, yourself, Bryce and Dave kind of break it down in a way that, you know, made sense. And really, because these are the kinds of things that you, you read about in the news, you read about, you know, these giant litigations against Monsanto, these giant litigations against Johnson and Johnson, or these, you know, uh, the Vegas shooting case, the Boeing case, you know, these, these are very newsworthy events because they affect so many people and they're on such a large scale. So it was, it was really interesting to get insight into that whole world. I think what people need to remember though, as they're looking at these in the news, and for anybody who's a non-lawyer that might be listening to this, or even who's a lawyer who doesn't do any mass tort work and sees $800 million result, you have to understand that there are thousands of people that qualify for this settlement. So when you break it down, I was doing the math last night um, after attorney's fees and costs. I think, I think that the average plaintiff will recover right around $100,000. So each individual plaintiff is recovering something that is substantial, but they're not recovering hundreds of millions of dollars. It is a large number primarily because whatever corporate entity or company has done something so wrong to so many people that it becomes a mass event, um, which, you know, like you said, you're seeing it with Roundup, you're seeing it with Zantac cancer cases, you're seeing it with we've seen it with asbestos cases for 35, 40 years. And that's where I started on the defense was doing asbestos defense. And those cases will last for forever because there are so many uh, defendants who used those dangerous products knowingly. Joining us today is Dave Nyman. Dave is a personal injury attorney and consumer rights attorney at Romanucci and Blandin in Chicago. As the senior attorney for the firm's complex litigation practice, David is currently representing victims of Juul's deceptive marketing practice, causing addiction and physical injuries to America's youth. In addition, he represents victims of the Boeing 737 MAX 8 airplane crash, serogenics cases in Willowbrook, and an ammonia chemical spill in Beach Park, Illinois. He is also representing businesses, including restaurants and other retail store owners that have sustained devastating financial losses related to the COVID-19 pandemic and is assisting them in seeking payments rightfully due from their insurance companies for business interruption losses. Bryce also works in the complex litigation group at Romanucci and Blandin. He represents individual and classes of victims from toxic exposures, product defects, and other catastrophic personal injuries. Bryce represents the victims of the October 1, 2017 shooting in Las Vegas, Roundup herbicide exposure around the country, the public housing heating crisis in New York City, and chemical dumping and groundwater contamination in Union, Illinois. Most recently, 
Bryce has begun representing individuals who took prescription and over-the-counter Zantac medications, which was recalled by the FDA due to defects in its design, potentially leading to cancer. Bryce was also just named to Crane Chicago Business's top 20 in their 20s. So without further ado, let's turn it over to Bryce and Dave and the two of us in a nice roundtable discussion about mass torts and aggregate litigation. So today we're having a roundtable discussion with Dave Nyman from Roman Mnuchin and Blandin and Bryce Hensley also from Roman Mnuchin and Blandin. Today we're going to be talking about class action, mass torts, and other multi-plaintiff litigation. Dave, Bryce, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us, Matt, John. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, Bryce, why don't you guys tell us real quick just what your practice is all about, what you guys are focusing on, and, and sort of the crux of what we're going to talk about today. Sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll take the lead, I guess, but, um, Bryce and I both are on the, I guess we'll refer to it as the complex litigation practice group, um, at Romanucci and Blandin Our practice encompasses other areas, but that takes up the majority of our time. And in that practice, we handle a lot of what we just will generally refer to as aggregate litigation. It can involve some types of class action cases, some cases that have been consolidated, and the aggravating event is what may be referred to as a mass tort. Um, and also, we handle a lot of cases that have been consolidated um, in the federal courts or in front of a particular federal judge under uh, what's referred to as multi-district litigation. And we'll spend a little bit of time talking about all those types of aggregate litigation um, throughout today. And I guess just above and beyond that, I've been practicing law for 10 years, um, started off on the dark side doing uh, some insurance defense work, and it ran the gamut of doing some insurance coverage work as well, um, some business litigation, and uh, handled all types of injury cases on the defense side as well before seeing the light and coming over to the good side. Um, went to law school, uh, my last year of law school at William & Mary, or I'm sorry, at Northwestern. I spent my first two years of law school at William & Mary in Virginia. And uh, beyond that, I had the proud honor of playing high school lacrosse at New Trier High School with uh, Matt Heimlich. Unfortunately, I <laughs> never championship on like he <laughs> So he's a winner. And unfortunately, I always came up in second place. But at least we tried. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. I'm glad you uh, left the dark side. And, you know, Matt and I did that, too. And it was the best decision I've ever made, for sure. I so I'm Bryce Hensley, also work with Dave over at Romanucci and Blandin. Uh, I've been practicing now for uh, just about three years. Uh, I went to Chicago Kent here in Chicago, uh, undergrad at University of Wisconsin. Uh, like Dave said, uh, working in the complex litigation group, I would say that 90 to 95% of my time is spent on aggregate litigation. Uh, that's mainly mass tort and class action work, uh, occasional you know, single event auto cases, premises cases, things like that. But, but the majority of my practice is spent on, on what we're going to be talking about today. Awesome. And you just received a pretty big honor I heard from Cranes. Is that right? I, I did. I did. Yeah. What was that? Uh, that was, uh, I was recognized as one of the uh, uh, 20 professionals in their twenties uh, in the Chicago area. So pretty, pretty. Is that just lawyers? Is that just lawyers or is that all business professionals? That, that would be uh, all business professionals, David. So, Well, congratulations. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I come to this from a place of actual and complete ignorance. I've never been involved with a class action or a mass tort type case. So 
for people like myself who are attorneys but don't really understand the differences, what what are some important distinctions between class actions and mass torts that you can talk about? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll take this one, Dave. Um, so at, at the beginning of any case, when you have more than one plaintiff, there's an initial assessment that you have to make. And, and it usually revolves around the question of how similar are these cases? Um, you know, if you go back to basic torts class, you know, you've got breach, uh, duty breach, causation and, and damages. And so you really have to take a take an assessment of, of what are the issues in the case. You know, what I what I always like in the situation, too, is say everyone's a member of the uh, Target uh, gift card or their Target Rewards Club member. And there are 10,000 people in that rewards club. Uh, they sign up and they're promised every year to get a thousand dollar rebate at the end of the year. Target sends that out. Um, it's defective. It's void for whatever reason. And all of those plaintiffs are left without that rebate that they were promised. This would be something, you know, maybe like a consumer class action. In that case, it's, it's best suited for a class action because across the board, you could look at each person and say, okay, they're all entitled to very similar damages, right? Um, the alternative situation is, is one that, you know, we deal with a lot in uh, cases that involve toxic exposure. Those cases are typically better suited for a mass tort situation. Uh, they wouldn't get certified as a class because there's too many individual issues. For instance, you know, John Smith living in house A, um, you know, they're going to have different exposures to airborne or water or chemicals uh, than the person down the street. Maybe they live there longer. Uh, maybe they're a little bit closer to the source. And so those individual questions make it very difficult to certify a class. And so that would be what would be considered a mass tort. And, and the majority of cases that we work on here at Romanucci and Blandin um, are, they, they do fall into that category. So that would be you know, the sterogenics litigation that we're working on out in the suburbs, uh, Beach Park chemical spill, which uh, Dave is, is working heavily on out in the suburbs, the Las Vegas shooting litigation, and then a lot of the pharma product litigation too, like Zantac or the uh, herbicide uh, pesticide realm, like Roundup. Um, those are all cases that fit more squarely into the category of a mass tort. That's awesome. So one thing that springs to mind when we're talking about class actions and we're talking about uh, commonality, uh, the, the requirement of commonality, if you're looking at a consumer class action, more and more I'm seeing forced arbitration clauses that um, you know discourage the ability to form classes. Are there ways that you guys have found to still pursue those cases or work around those agreements in order to try to, um, you know, band a class together in order to get justice. I will say that that is one of the big issues that I know that there's been legislation and there's been efforts on a federal level to try to get around that. Obviously with the consumer uh, barriers to get over, if you're going to try to preclude a class from forming together that impacts the ability to on a large scale actually effectuate real change. And so it's not always easy to effectuate or that change in the courtroom. So that is more so of a legislative effort that I would say, as opposed to something that. All right, we're going. So on the issue of um, forced arbitration, usually we find that more so in, in consumer contracts, credit card, uh, contracts, things of the like. And those are um, 
barriers that we try to overcome um, in our practice, but usually the real change is going to be effectuated on a federal legislative level. And that's where we see that fight. And so what we try to do is um, team up with the politicians who are going to be more compassionate about consumer rights, individual rights, to make sure that big businesses aren't able to take advantage of um, unassuming and unknowing consumers by limiting their rights contractually um, in ways that they don't appreciate when they enter into a contract. And so, unfortunately, we haven't been able to effectuate the change that we want in the courtrooms, but hopefully we can do it on a federal level to prevent that from happening in the first place. Yeah, one thing, one thing I'll just say in general, you know, when you're, when you're talking about a lot of these class actions, and just aggregate litigation in general, the, it's all about leveling the playing field, right? I mean, the, the whole idea behind these mechanisms is to give the plaintiffs, the injured victims, a level playing field with these corporate giants. I mean, you talk about Monsanto, Bayer, um, you know, in, in the Las Vegas litigation, it was, it was MGM. I mean, these are multinational billion dollar corporations. And on top of, you know, the, the difficulties that just come with that is if you're just one person going up against these corporations, it's not always easy. And there's, there's, there are economies of scale that you have to look at. And so what the class action mechanism and consolidation really bring to the table is it allows that playing field to be leveled. And by putting in, you know, arbitration clauses and things like that, it's corporate entities trying to tip the scales back in their favor. And like Dave said, you know, there has to be, uh, there has to be legislative outreach. There has to be pressure to, to keep the playing field as level as possible for injured victims. And in addition to that, building off what Bryce just said, one of the requirements when you take on a class action case, um, if you are going to be appointed a representative counsel for the class, familiarity with the class action system, familiarity with aggregate litigation in general, a history of taking on those cases and, and succeeding on them. And in addition, having the financial wherewithal to actually take on some of these big corporate behemoths. Uh, those are things that the court will look at in determining whether or not you as a lawyer, you as a law firm, or you as a group of law firms can band together to, to put up the fight that's necessary to actually get a result. So like you're saying, a lot of this is having the experience, knowing the ins and outs of, of a different system than single plaintiff litigation, you know, a different system than, um, you know, the stuff that I do on a daily basis, although my firm does do some aggregate litigation in an environmental context like sterogenics and things like that. Um, how uh, long have you guys been, been doing this type of work? How did you transition, for, for, you, for instance, you, Dave, from the defense side to this, you know, aggregate litigation, complex litigation field? How'd you guys make that switch or move? Well, for me, um, I think that everybody in their career, it's just kind of, you fall into a situation and then you kind of run with it. And so starting off doing defense work, I had the opportunity to litigate a whole host of different issues, um, whether it be simple injury cases to complex business matters. Uh, when I went over to the plaintiff side, I had the opportunity to get more practical trial experience, trying some pretty high-profile medical malpractice cases or cases that have a different level of complexity, because I don't want people to confuse a business issue as being more or less complex than a medical issue, because they are just a different level or a different type of complexity. Um, from there, after you get certain experience, I just fell into a situation, a good one at Romanucci and Blandin, where I had the opportunity to work on some of these very high profile um, 
cases that involve just a large number of uh, aggregate uh, parties. So that includes the Boeing air crash cases where in a past life I have worked on a bunch of airplane crash cases and through that experience was able to lay to be an asset on our uh, Boeing air crash team. Um, in addition, doing some insurance defense work, doing some insurance coverage work, um, learning coverage coverage issues that are associated with insurance policies. Uh, that made me a good fit to start taking an active hand on uh, litigating these business interruption litigation cases where it's an aggregate case. We file some of these cases as class actions, in fact, and with the coverage experience, learning how to navigate aggregate litigation, it was, it was a good fit for me for that particular case. So I think just with the experience I had and then with the situational opportunities that I have taking advantage of them, that's allowed me to work on some good high profile cases. Yeah, I'll say that uh, for me personally, I was uh, I was sworn in on a I think it was a Friday. Or I'm sorry, I was I received the notification that I passed the bar on a Friday, and that Sunday was actually the October one shooting. Uh, two days later was the October one shooting out in Las Vegas, and um, so that was really the first case um, that I was ever really assigned to um, here at here at our office. And when I was in law school, I, I, I studied a lot and focused a lot on, on class and, and mass aggregate litigation. Um, and, and since that time, I think with, you know, bringing Dave on, I think what's it been, Dave, a year now that you've been at the firm? Yeah. Um, you know, our practice in, in the mass and class area has really expanded. Uh, so I can't really say I've known much else other than this. Um, you know, I, like I said, I, I have handled uh, single event cases here and there, but uh, the majority of my practice since since day one has been in this area, and it's you know to me it's it's incredibly complex and challenging, but but that's what I really enjoy, um, and it's you know like I said I think our practice has really grown into this area, um, you know we're handling a lot of these cases now, and uh, you know we have the support to do it. Bryce, let's uh, start with you. I want to ask you about um, you know with, especially when it comes to. Uh, the drug cases and the toxic exposure type cases. What is the typical procedure and the bellwether process for those cases? Sure. So, so what you see, you know, a lot of times is, you know, around the country, it really depends on the type of case, but I'll take the, the drug cases first. Um, you know, you, you tend to have plaintiffs from all over the country. And so what tends to happen is cases are filed in all 50 states. And at some point there's a motion that's filed um, in the in the federal courts to consolidate all of these cases to one court. It makes sense that you know you'd want one judge deciding all of the pretrial discovery issues. It just makes sense. There's you know you're saving a lot of time, a lot of resources by having it all decided by one judge. Um, what tends to happen then is that at some point the judge will tear out the discovery. Say you have ten thousand cases. You know, they'll say, okay, you know, we need to select a few cases to really push forward and drive these common issues. You know, which, which case is going to have the deposition? Which lawyers are going to take this? And so there's typically a leadership structure that's appointed um, by the courts on, on the plaintiff side to, you know, make these determinations of, okay, which cases are going to be pushed forward first. And then, you know, a good example of this would be the roundup cases right now. You know, what tends to happen you have, um, you know, three to four, maybe more cases that get tried that kind of set the 
they set the average or they set the tone for the remaining cases. Um, I mean, realistically, no one's going to try 10,000 or 100,000 roundup cases. But what, what the courts try to do is they say, okay, four or five of these cases have been tried. Here are the results. Plaintiffs, defendants, let's get together and let's try to settle these cases out. Um, those are typically the, what are known as the bellwether trials. Um, and either name, you know, that, that's, those are the cases that are driving the litigation and, and, and setting, setting the tone for the remainder of the cases. Um, you know, when it comes to the toxic exposure, like sterogenics, for instance, it's a little bit different because those cases are, are going to be geographically confined. Uh, to a certain area. Maybe it's one mile, maybe it's three miles, maybe it's 10 miles. Um, but what we did in that case is, you know, those cases were filed in state court. Um, you know, there was obviously a, a long battle over whether the cases should be in state court or federal court. But, you know, we won out on that issue, rightfully so, that the cases belonged in state court. And, and those are now pending in in, in Cook County. Um, and, you know, we're, we're approaching it in a similar way. Um, Cook County is a little bit different with the way they approach it, but the cases that are going first are the, are the cases that were filed first. And so it's going to depend jurisdiction to jurisdiction where you're at, you know, which cases proceed uh, in the litigation first. But, you know, the, the idea is that you're never going to try all these cases. And so you try to bring them together and resolve as many common issues as you can uh, to drive final resolution. And building off of Bryce said, one of the important things when there are a number of plaintiffs, a number of law firms that are together, there, everyone is best served when there's a uniform group that is really leading the drive. Because as you can imagine, the more splintered the group is, the worse off it is for the collective whole. Because the bellwether process, as, Bell, as Bryce indicated, it's not uniform. So it's not that the judge always picks or the plaintiffs choose which case go first or the defendants choose which case go first. And that's always a fun conversation and it's never is uniform how it works out. So obviously as plaintiffs, you want your best case to be tried first so you can get the best result providing resolution on the issues that are the most important to you in the way that you want them resolved. Um, defendants want the worst case to be resolved first so they get the best result for the defendants so it hurts the plaintiffs the most and it really quells their hopes of you know a large settlement. So it's always an interesting thing, and when you have a, a good cohesive unit of plaintiffs' attorneys working together for the best interest of the collective whole, usually that's the best way to get the best cases uh, tried first, where then you can get the best results for everybody else. I think I think that's I think that's really important, and in, in, in working on some of these large cases, I mean Las Vegas is a great example. You know we had lawyers hundreds over a hundred law firms from all over the country. And in, in sterogenics, we have, I think, two dozen, uh, you know, plaintiff's law firms working together. And, and, and so much of, of what's driven the success in those cases or what's continuing to drive the success in those cases is the fact that, that people are working together. And, you know, it, it takes a lot sometimes for people to push egos aside. Um, but if, if you step back and you recognize that, you know, rising tides raise all ships, you know, you're eventually going to be, you know, benefiting the collective group, like Dave said, by working together and, and, and driving the ship together rather than, you know, pulling apart at the seams and trying to do your own thing. Uh, you know, sometimes you see that where you get, you know, maybe rogue filings or people trying to go off. And, and, and it's usually the, the better course of action is to work together. And this, you know, this, you can, you can break this down. You don't have to talk about a hundred or 500 person 
case to, to recognize this. I mean, you see this in, in single event cases like a, like a car accident where you have multiple law firms representing multiple parties that, are, that were injured in a crash. Um, you know, you guys want to work together to benefit the entire case, not just your own client. It tends to work better when you do it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of pros. Um, and it doesn't seem to me that there are as many cons to aggregate litigation. But can you just touch on some of the, the downsides, why you may want to uh, take a case and split it from the group in any of these uh, various litigations, if you do at all? I guess it it depends. I mean, you know, sometimes people have a negative connotation of a class action because, um, you know, in a, in a class action case, you tend to have a class representative, right? You have one person that or a group of people that's making a, a decision on behalf of a larger group. And sometimes you lose a little bit of independence if, you know, the named named plaintiffs in the case are getting some kind of benefit that maybe others aren't. Or, or, you know, maybe their cases are settling to an amount that's fair for them, but maybe there's, there's a straggler on the outside that has a catastrophic injury or something like that. And the same thing goes for mass tort cases is sometimes you'll have a global settlement, but there's somebody that's left out. And so, you know, there's ways to work around that, but there are occasions where, um, you know, plaintiffs may want to opt out. They may want to proceed on a case on their own. Um, that, that does happen from time to time. And also, I think expeditious resolution, quick resolution of key issues or uh, cases in general. Sometimes when you get into aggregate litigation, you sometimes get bogged down, as Bryce said, by what every other plaintiff may be going through. So um, in the business interruption litigation that we recently filed, we intentionally filed these cases only seeking uh, a declaratory judgment from the courts, not messing with the damages. And when other law firms say that they want to bring the damages to the court's attention, we believe that slows down the process. We're trying to get a resolution from the court that a loss is covered by the insurance policy. When we have to calculate what those damages are and then litigate the extent of them, we thought that would slow down the process. Um, In that particular case, there's been class actions that have been filed in addition to petitions to consolidate the cases in front of uh, an MDL judge. And so doing that, the differences from the other cases may slow down us getting resolution, getting answers on the issues that are important to us so that we can best represent our clients. And so sometimes being caught in aggregate litigation can be a detriment to your client. Yeah. And, and one other point is, you know, from time to time, depending on how large the group is and, and depending on what the claims are, um, you know, there may be more strategic reasons for it. Um, you know, if, if, a, if a group of plaintiffs gets large enough and, and um, you know, there, there's a situation where the case may get removed to federal court, um, there are plenty of cases, you know, I'm thinking of some of the, the drug cases that are out there um, where, you know, in state court in Illinois, you know, we obviously have the Fry standard um, and in federal court, you have the Daubert standard. And so, you know, there are certain reasons why, you know, if, if you if you go to certify a class in state court. And the class is large enough or, or meets the requirements under CAFA, which is the Class Action Fairness Act, your case may end up getting removed. And so it may be smart for you as the plaintiff attorney to, to consider that. And you may not want to try to move for a class action or you may not want to aggregate your cases together because you may trigger, trigger a federal proceeding. Dave, I wanted to ask you something. You talked a little bit earlier about uh, the kind of place where 
litigation and lawmaking intersect. Uh, I know you've been handling a lot of the jewel cases. I know there's been a lot of proposed legislation pertaining to that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your involvement in that process? Well, um, as you've kind of indicated, a lot of the cases that we're working on, I would throw Boeing in there as well, because when the, when the investigative process on a legislative level is coinciding with the litigation, it creates a fun scenario where we are learning information, sometimes just from the media because of what can and cannot be released. Um, and it makes litigating kind of funny because you're now checking out newspapers and you're trying to refer to various other publications to figure out what is actually happening, what did happen. And so you can have different routes leading to the same goal. As a litigator, as a trial lawyer, you're trying to investigate, you're trying to look at the evidence and you're trying to figure out what happened. When you have someone uh, politically trying to get the same objective met, it just creates an interesting interface where you're going to be working sometimes even with those legislators that are trying to get the same answers as you. But on the flip side of that, which Bryce I know can talk about with uh, sterogenics as well, sometimes the government investigation slows down the process of getting legal justice for your clients. Because as there is a political or a government investigation, maybe from the NTSB following a crash um, or with a, a toxic chemical spill like we're dealing with in the Beach Park chemical spill case, there is going to be a slowdown in getting important information, important documents, important investigative materials released that can resolve the issues that are pertinent in the litigation. So oftentimes the litigation is held hostage to a government investigation and it can slow down the process of us as lawyers getting the answers to the questions that we have to best serve our clients' interests. Dave, I know you talked a little bit earlier about um, some of the COVID business interruption that you've been involved with. Yeah. Um, well, tell us a little bit about that, where you are, and where do you expect uh, those cases to progress? So it's uh, it, they're interesting cases, and so far the basic issue that has to be resolved is uniform amongst all the cases that are being filed. Uh, regardless of the insurance company, regardless of the business, the basic issue that's trying to be resolved is whether or not this pandemic or the civil authority decisions made by the governors of our state in Illinois, Governor Pritzker, or other departments, Department of Public Health, for example, whether or not their determinations to shut down non-essential businesses like restaurants, um, which cause business income losses or extended income losses, whether or not those losses are covered by an insurance policy. And the insurance industry has done a good job of unifying and coming together by saying, no, there is no coverage for these cases on the grounds that there's been no tangible physical property loss to the insured premises. Um, we don't think that's correct. Um, we think that you, know, you still have sustained, sustained a loss to your business because you can't function per normal. And we believe those are covered losses under the policies. So it causes an interesting um, issue, though, as well with aggregate litigation, because there's been efforts on a variety of fronts. So there have been class actions filed, and we have filed class actions against insurance companies where the same policy is being uh, denied or coverage is being denied under the same policy by the same insurance companies for an identical set of circumstances. And so we think that class action certification under those circumstances is warranted. Um, there's also been an effort, uh, petitions have been filed to uh, get these cases under one umbrella under a multi-district litigation. Um, and those are going to be a different issue to be resolved. In those cases, you have 
a ton of insurance policies that read differently, that do or do not have various exclusions or various provisions that would provide coverage. Um, and people are going to ask the courts to interpret those applying the laws of 50 different states, whether or not under those different circumstances, those can be consolidated in one uh, in front of one judge for the purpose of multi-district litigation um, is another issue. So I think it's one of those extreme set of circumstances that nobody in their wildest dreams could have ever imagined. And it's created a, a bit of a, a scary situation for everybody. Everyone's impacted by this. And, you know, the, we're going to be pursue, pursuing this in the courts, but there's going to be, again, another track um, of potential legislation that could provide some remedy to our clients. And so it's just yet another example where um, there's going to be potential legislation that will impact or in some way impede our, our, our litigation. Dave, you said something that I think is really interesting, and it reminded me, I started my career on the defense side doing uh, mostly asbestos work on behalf of manufacturers. And in every case, every asbestos case, since the majority of them are filed in Illinois, there's a choice of law issue in every case. Do you, uh, Bryce, Dave, do you guys run into with the MDL when everything gets consolidated into court, you know, district court X, do you run into a lot of choice of law issues? Um, how do you really figure out what law applies to which cases? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, we're dealing with it right now in some of the roundup cases. Um, you know, we're looking at statute of limitations and, and which states statute of limitations apply. Um, you know, there's, there's an MDL, a federal MDL that's pending in California that's applying Ninth Circuit law, um, generally speaking, to a lot of the decisions. Uh, and then you get down into Missouri, which is where uh, Monsanto is, is headquartered. There's a, a state version of an MDL down there. Um, and, you know, we're dealing right now, I'll give you an example. We have a, a client um, who, who lived in a, a state with a two-year statute of limitations. And in Missouri, the statute of limitations on a personal injury case is five years. Uh, and so, you know, you have to look at, okay, which state's law is going to apply. And there's a lot of research that goes into that uh, because what tends to happen with all of these MDL cases is they develop a, a, a law, a procedure of their own. Um, you know, you get into a case and you're not only dealing with local rules, you're not only dealing with, say, the federal rules in an MDL, but you're dealing with that particular judge's rules. You're dealing with the protocol and the procedure that are established for the MDL. For instance, in the Zantac litigation, you can actually file cases directly into the MDL uh, without having to have a local attorney down in Florida where the cases are centered. Contrast that with Roundup in California. You have to file the cases where they're properly venued. So if we have a case in Illinois, you got to file in Illinois, and then the case gets sucked up and ends up getting transferred. So, you know, it takes a lot to really look into each case and not only learn the local rules, but the actual rules and the law of the case and how that's going to apply. And expanding on that, I mean, it's never a simple answer. Some cases, some contracts may have choice of law provisions, but you know, enforcing a contract with one state's law, if the contract was signed and put into effect in another state, the applicability of that choice of law provision has to come into question. And also echoing something that Bryce was mentioning earlier, for example, in our, uh, our Boeing air crash cases, a crash in Ethiopia, there was a defendant though, who's headquartered in Chicago, Illinois, with factories in Washington state, and a product was tested in Washington state, and a crash occurred in 
a, a country in the African continent. And so deciding, you know, for probate purposes, for damages purposes, which law governs, these are never simple issues. They are heavy, heavily litigated, heavily briefed, and it's never an easy answer. And so we deal with that on nearly every case that's going to have a national or even international uh, implication. I know that you talked a little bit about the Zantac litigation. I've been noting a lot of advertising pertaining to that in recent weeks. Um, t- tell us where we are in the Zantac litigation process and where do you expect it to go? So, so this case is really fascinating um, on a lot of different fronts, but most, most people are aware that Zantac is a heartburn medication. Um, and what happened is, is back in September, uh, the FDA came out uh, and, and actually started recalling some of the uh, the, the products from the shelves. And, and back in April, about a month ago, uh, it became a full recall of all Zantac or generic products. And this stuff has been on the market since the 80s. Um, but basically what they found out is that once the, the drug is consumed and it's in your body, it actually breaks down into a known carcinogen, NDMA. Um, and so obviously that news triggered lawsuits all over the country. Um, eventually what happened was, is there was a, a hearing to determine whether or not those cases should be uh, consolidated somewhere. And they were, they were consolidated down in Miami in the Southern district of Florida federal court. And, and those cases are now proceeding. Uh, it's still very early on in that litigation. Um, but it's, it's, it's actually taken off remarkably fast. And, and the, the scary thing about it is that you know, this chemical that they're talking about, this NDMA, is what they actually use to inject lab rats when they're trying to get control experiments uh, to determine, you know, cancer rates and things like that. It's the actual substance they inject them with to give them cancer. Um, so it's, it's frightening stuff, especially considering how many people have taken this product over the years. But, you know, the cancers that most people are looking at for this product are, um, you know, in the digestive tract, so esophageal. Uh, stomach, intestinal, colorectal cancer, liver cancer, kidney cancer. Um, at this point, you know, the, the book's kind of open because of how dangerous this chemical is. Uh, but that litigation is progressing, like I said. I think they're in the process now of setting up kind of a leadership structure uh, on the plaintiff side, you know, interviewing prospective firms to see who best is going to be in the position to kind of run this litigation. So I'm curious, you guys, when we talk about multi-plaintiff litigation, we talk about all of these cases being you know, sucked up into an MDL or being centralized somewhere. Um, I've handled cases that are multi-plaintiff, but they're all usually in an environmental context. So all the plaintiffs live in the same place. You know, For instance, we're suing a, a plant that's built TCE and everyone lives in the neighborhood next to the plant, right? Um, in that case, it's very easy to go meet with all of your plaintiffs or get them all together in a group and meet. Uh, how does client you know, management, how does managing client expectations and client communication work in one of these larger uh, cases where they're spread out all over the country or maybe even all over the world? I can, I can speak to my experience and then Dave, I don't know if you want to hop in and, and deal with this too. Um, but, you know, I, I can say myself, I, I don't treat it much different than, than any other case. I mean, I would say at any given time, you know, I, I have a significant number of clients, you know, into the well into the hundreds. Um, but I make myself accessible. I mean, we're in the 21st century now. Um, all of my clients that I speak to have my cell phone. They have my email address. And, and for the most part, you know, we do a good job of, of keeping them up to date on the litigation. 
you know, the, the one downside with, with any large scale litigation is that it does take time. And I think it's important to let clients know that you got to manage their expectations that, you know, this isn't a, a car accident case that's going to be resolved in one year dealing with an insurance adjuster. This is going to take a significant amount of time. And, and most people understand that. And, uh, you know, you keep them updated with letters, just like I think you would do on any case, make yourself accessible. And, and like I said, just treat it like any other, any other case. Um, and to the extent that you can, you know, you maintain contact as best as, best as possible. And just to get the best use out of your time, I mean, for class actions or consolidated cases in general, there typically are notice requirements. So you have to keep the class or the group together. Um, you have to let them know what's going on in the litigation. And since everyone's going to be impacted similarly, usually you just write a, a broad letter that's going to highlight the key strokes of what's going on in the litigation and where you see it going, just so you can make sure everybody knows what's going on. Um, but everything else Bright said is, is accurate. I mean, it's sometimes tough just because instead of um, having a bunch of cases, we're going to be dealing with a bunch of different clients. You have a bunch of different clients dealing with the very same issue. Um, so you still try to make yourself accessible for personalized questions, but generally as much as possible, you try to send out um, form letters that are going to be going to the larger group to let everybody know what's going on in their respective cases. And I want to kind of talk about something that's a local issue, particularly for John and I, since we don't practice out in the Western suburbs. I know the sterogenics issue has been going on for a long time, and I wanted to kind of get an update about what you guys are dealing with and you know how the government investigation, I know you talked about it being a little bit of an impediment towards moving the case towards resolution, but what, what do you expect from that case? So I, I can speak on this. Um, you know, right now that the case is pending uh, in the circuit court of Cook County, um, you know, we're in the discovery phase. Um, I think what's really impeded things more than anything is, is COVID um, and, the, and the coronavirus uh, situation. It's just made things uh, a little difficult, I think, for any type of case at this point. Um, you know, engaging in discovery. I mean, we, we've been adamant uh, in all of our cases to try to push things forward. And, and, you know, like I said earlier, we're in the 21st century. Most of this stuff is available electronically. Um, there shouldn't be, you know, whether you're talking about a case in discovery or a case that's primed for mediation or resolution, there shouldn't be any impediment uh, to the legal process with this situation. Um, but, you know, I think right now where we're at is, you know, the cases are moving forward. We're, we're scheduled for trial in May of next year on the first case, um, a first, the first filed case. And there are trials staggered every month and a half after that, uh, or I think it's for the remaining seven months of the year. So May through November, as of now, we're slated for trial on those cases. Um, and, you know, our plan is to continue pushing forward on those. The thought of going to trial right now, it just seems so abstract. It's good to hear that things are on the books and hopefully moving forward to a jury sometime soon. We, we hope so. I mean, you know, the, the situation that's been floated by some judges are Zoom trials. I don't know how well those will work. I mean, it seems like it would be just absolutely, I just couldn't imagine it. It's unimaginable. Um, and, you know, I think at some point, though, you know, hopefully these restrictions get lifted and you know, we can start putting jurors back in the box if we have to distance them out six feet from each other, and you know, so be it. Uh, but I think I think the show must go on, and we have to start, you know, having jury trials resume again as soon as possible. Yeah. 
And whether the case is consolidated for purposes of discovery or if it's a formal class action, a threat of trial, just like any other case, is really one of the only ways that we can get a fair and just settlement. Um, otherwise, we don't really have a threat against the, the defendants that something real is going to happen and that they're going to have to face their day in court. So until we get an opportunity to actually try cases again, there's going to inevitably be a slowdown in our ability to do right by our clients. In that vein, with the MDLs and the class actions, um, isn't trial sometimes a necessity in order to get to a point where you can actually get justice for everybody? You know, we talked about bellwether trials and why they're important earlier, but do you find that the majority of the aggregate litigation that you're involved in is inevitably going to go to trial or, or what do you tend, how do you tend to play that? 1000%. Yes. Um, I think that not only to get resolution on certain issues, but also to set, you know, the bar of what fair damages are. And it differs case by case. Um, but when you can get evaluation or analysis on how someone or a group of jurors are going to interpret various issues that are going to be of importance, not only to your client, but to the case as a whole, at that point, and only at that point, will corporate defendants who are viewing these cases from a business perspective as opposed to, to a humanity perspective or a human perspective, um, that's the only way that they can actually see the value of these cases and evaluate their quote-unquote business losses on a whole. Yeah, I mean, you look at the Roundup cases. I mean, if, if you were to ask me, you know, what is a, what is a case worth? Uh, for somebody that was diagnosed with with cancer from exposure to Roundup, you know, you could throw out numbers, you could throw out 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, but you look at the way that the trials progressed. I mean, you went from 287 million, I think it was. Uh, the second one was 80 something million. And then you had a $2 billion verdict. I mean, you talk about the threat of trial, you know, no one really knows what these cases are worth in, until you put it in front of 12 people in the jury box and say, you tell us. And, and those cases are a perfect example of why jury trials are so important um, because, you know, you can, we can sit here as the attorneys all day and tell the defense attorneys, hey, this is what the case is worth. And they're going to they're gonna brush us off and say, yeah, 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 we'll see. And then you come in with a jury verdict like that and, and it's undeniable. Um, I mean, do you, do you as the defense attorney really want to try a thousand more, a hundred more, 10 more of these cases and get whacked just like this? I mean, that's, that's the, those are the benefits of having a jury trial. Yeah. What's the flip side of that? What happens when the bellwether breaks bad? How does that impact the rest of the MDL? How does that, you know, affect the rest of everything going on? You know, I, I think about some of the talk litigation. We've seen huge verdicts, but we've also seen appellate courts who are very hesitant to uphold those verdicts or, or have taken huge swipes at them. Um, how does that all tend to play out in your practices? Well, I think, I mean, the one thing you see in, in those cases is that there's just, there's a doubling down. I mean, uh, the attorneys uh, on, on the plaintiff side in the tout cases have continued to push the issue because they believe in it. Um, and, and I think rightfully so. And they push the issue. And now you just saw recently a New Jersey federal court um, allowed the cases to move past the Daubert stage, past the... Um, you know, the, the, the scientific standard in federal court. And so, you know, there, there are ways that you can get around that. But I mean, at some point, it does, it does kind of play the other way too. If, if you're trying cases consistently and, and they aren't successful on the plaintiff side, 
I mean, you have to take a step back and reassess, okay, what are our claims? What's our theory of liability? And is it worth progressing? I mean, any mass tort case, any class action case takes a considerable amount of resources. And I, and I think you have to be very wise about how you use those um, in moving the cases forward. And if, if uh, a consistent refrain that you're hearing is, there's not a case here, I, I think you really have to reassess that. And beyond that, that's also why the importance of getting the best case tried first from the perspective of the plaintiff is very, very important. If the defense gets to choose their bellwether case and they stick it to you pretty good, your ability to go back to them and then say, now we should discuss mass settlement, it's not going to be too good for the group as a whole. And so that's why trying to make sure that your issues are tried and ruled in your favor early on is very important. So let me, let me just ask you, um, if you're in a position like I'm in, where I've been practicing for eight years now, um, is this something you think uh, people should dabble in, or is this something that you need to be able to dedicate a whole practice to? I mean, describe what the practice is like to an outsider. Uh, I, can, I can speak to that. I think both Dave and I can speak to that. But, but I would say that it's, it's, it's very difficult to just dabble in this. And for all the reasons I said before, it, these cases really take on a, a procedure and, a, and rules of their own, lives of their own. And, and I think it's important to, to recognize that. I mean, if you do look at the current breakdown of cases that are pending in the federal uh, docket, over half of them are now pending in an MDL. Um, they're not all thousand, you know, case MDLs, but but you know they may be five to ten cases. Um, they may be a couple dozen. Um, so having some knowledge of it, I think, is certainly important. But but I think it does take a uh, a significant investment of time, of effort, of education, and energy to really uh, succeed in the area. I mean, it's I, I don't you know I don't want to sit here and say that not everyone can do it. I think, you know, if you, you devote enough time and effort, you could, but um, I, I think it is something that you really have to dedicate yourself to. And I think it's very difficult to, to balance, um, you know, doing the single event cases alongside it. I think that if, if there's a firm out there that's, that's considering doing this, um, you know, it, it has to be something that you have a, a handful of people dedicated like Dave and myself to just doing this type of work, because it, it is, um, you know, one to two cases can be the equivalent of, you know, 50 to 100, maybe even 200 single event cases, because you have so many clients, there's so many issues, and there's so many intricacies that go in, into each one of these types of cases that you just don't see in, in your, um, you know, your ordinary single event cases. In addition to the administrative nightmare that can go into handling hundreds of cases or thousands of cases governed under one you know, legal issue. So if it's a class action or a multi-district litigation, that alone can be just overwhelming. So you need the administrative staff, you need the resources so that you can keep on top of all those cases, whether it just be handling intake or ordering records. Uh, above and beyond that, though, you're usually dealing with large businesses, corporations on the other end, and this issue typically is not one that involves a short period of time. It involves years and years of research and development and internal communications. And it's very document intensive. 
So when you're looking over hundreds of thousands of documents, it takes a lot of time. And so it is a very difficult thing just to dabble in it because it's going to take over your life. I mean, you can look at all these movies that have been made about these huge cases like Aaron Brockovich where small law firms that weren't capable of handling a case of that magnitude um, are almost shut down just because it's very, very difficult to have the financial and administrative resources to handle those cases appropriately. And that's why the courts have requirements that the plaintiff's firm or group of attorneys have the capacity and have the resources to litigate those cases appropriately, just because it can turn south on you very quick if you're not prepared or experienced. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing that I think, you know, our firm, um, you know, in, in the past two years, since I've been here past two, three years, it is something that, that we've really dove into head first and, and we've committed ourselves to um, along with Dave and myself, you know, we have a whole support team here that, that deals with these types of cases. And, and I think that's important. And so, you know, what I would say is that if, if there are attorneys listening to this, uh, you know, administrators of law firms that are listening to this, um, you know, there, there's a, there's a right way. There really is a right way and a wrong way to do this. Um, you know, our firm is always open to, to, to assisting others or, uh, you know, whether it's helping them set up their own practice or, um, assisting them with cases that come in. I mean, you look at some of these cases, uh, Zantac and Roundup. I mean, they're they're all over the country. They're spread out, um, and, and chances are you know somebody that that's been um, you know taking one of these products or using one of these products. And and I think it's important to understand at least the basics so that you can speak in an educated way to them, and uh, you know maybe help them get to the point where you know they can seek justice in the court. So Bryce, I know you, like myself, you're, are working a lot on sterogenics, which is a case that involves the sterilization of medical equipment and the release of you know, toxic substances into the air and how those cause cancer. Are there any other cases that are similar to that that you've, you've run across that you guys are working on that involve any sort of, sort of issues like that? Uh, yeah, there, there are actually. Uh, there's, there's one that we're handling right now out in Indiana, and it, it, it centers kind of around the flip side of that situation, which is um, it's a it's a hospital that uh, failed to sterilize medical equipment, and and the one you know overarching theme that I would put uh, together with these two cases is that uh, companies and, and hospitals and anyone that's sterilizing medical medical equipment has to do it properly and they have to do it safely. I mean, in sterogenics, you're looking at uh, a community, a residential community that's been breathing in a toxic gas for three decades. Um, that plant never should have been there in the first place, uh, but it is. And, and that's, you know, the basis for that lawsuit. And you look at the one out in Indiana, you have a situation where um, a hospital failed to sterilize medical equipment, they failed to do it properly. And they subjected to uh, subjected to over a 1000 people to medical procedures, surgical procedures, without that in place. And so our office right now uh, is has filed a class action lawsuit out there, um, seeking certification for all of those people who one day received a letter in the mail from this hospital saying, you may have been exposed to hepatitis B, hepatitis C, or HIV. Um, and all of these folks um, obviously suffered emotional distress. I mean, you look at the current situation we're in right now with COVID and, and the coronavirus, and you look at the, the overarching panic that is that has seized both national and international communities, and we're in a position now where, okay, now we're talking about a, a small community in Indiana 
that's been exposed to the worst kinds of diseases, um, all because of a hospital's negligence. And that case is one that we feel very strongly about should be certified as a class action um, because all of the folks suffered um, the same kind of emotional distress of you may have been exposed to a fatal infectious disease because of our negligence. Um, and so that's, that's another case that, that we're working on here at our office that, that we feel very strongly about. When we talk about these cases, we talk about toxic exposures, drug defects, product defects. You're talking about massive plane crashes and, you know, cancer causing products, things like that. What is the next wave? What is the future of aggregate litigation, mass tort, class action litigation? Is there anything on the horizon that you see as sort of the next uh, large scale mass tort class action? Well, we've seen a lot with the, uh, the BIPA litigation, with the access of technology and the protection of personal uh, information. That's been um, a new wave of litigation that we've seen going above and beyond some of the physical injuries that can be um, sustained as a result of some sort of corporate greed more often than not. Um, and, and we've seen that in our own personal practices as well. We have recently filed a lawsuit against Lurie's Children Hospital over their failure to adequately protect personal health information. Um, in the case, we're alleging that two employees on separate occasions were able to access um, personal health information of minor children who went there for various reasons. And so um, damages that you know flow from that are going to be different than someone who sustained a, a catastrophic or fatal injury, but the seriousness or significance of it nonetheless is still very relevant and very real. And so as we, be, as we become more um, bound to technology, more reliant on technology, I think that we're going to see, and we've already seen, uh, more litigation um, out of someone's failure to actually take adequate care and necessary care to protect that personal information. Yeah, that's that's so important, and it's it's really the the modern tort that you have to look at. I mean, these companies now, especially these large, you know, whether it's hospitals or corporations. I mean, you see it all the time. Neiman Marcus, Equifax, Target, data breaches happen all the time now, and it's not like these companies aren't on notice. You know, you hear about the stuff in the news all the time. Security and personal health information, personal financial information has to be protected. Companies have to act reasonably, just like you would imagine in any other kind of case. You know, if you're, you're a lawyer, you know, you have to act as a reasonable person would act. These companies have to act reasonably now that all of them are using personal health information. They're storing this information. They're aware that it's, it's vulnerable to hacking. And you have to have the proper precautions in place to protect against that. And we see it in our own uh, document retention requirements. We all have cyber liability insurance that we as law firms have to purchase just because we're acquiring and intaking personal health information and other documentation related to our own clients. Similarly, similarly we have a requirement to protect that from our clients or for our clients. And so it is something that's going to impact everybody in when people violate that trust and that uh, protection, uh, that is something that's going to be uh, an opening for new lawsuits. If anybody's looking to uh, reach you guys, how would they best find you? Well, we have a, a beautiful little website set up, rblaw.net. But beyond that, uh, my email is d 
Nyman, but I mispronounced my name. So it's spelled like Neiman, N-E-I-M-A-N at rblaw.net. Or you can always call me on my phone, 312-253-8810. And, and likewise, uh, email is bhensley at rblaw.net, B-H-E-N-S-L-E-Y at rblaw.net. And uh, my number is 312-253-8800. I want to thank both of you guys for carving out some time during this uh, pandemic to uh, come talk to us about what I, what I find to be tremendously fascinating um, because it gives such broad access to justice for so many people that would probably otherwise be kept out of a courtroom because you know, it would be too expensive or too time consuming or something else to pursue their case on an individual basis. Um, very, very interesting. Um, thank you guys very much for coming on. Any last words or any last bits of advice for anybody listening? Not for me. Hopefully we can sue someone together, Jan. That would be great. <laughs> well, once again, we want to thank Dave and Bryce for stopping by and sharing their experience with us. I know it was a great discussion, and I know I personally learned a lot from it. Uh, before we wrap up today, we're going to give you, you our 30-second trial tip, one thing we do to make our cases stronger and our trials better. Uh, John, what's yours for this week? My trial tip is something we were talking about before we hit the record button, uh, and it was your point. Um, as a plaintiff's attorney, it's so vitally important to rely on other plaintiff's attorneys to help you. There are things that I do not know, admittedly, that Matt knows a lot about. And so I can pick his brain often about problems I might have in a case. Do not ever hesitate to pick up the phone. Call one of us. Call somebody else you know. You're not in this practice alone. You're not an island. And the better our cases can be, the better everyone else's cases can be. We want the rising tide to lift all boats. And so I don't think there's any such thing as a dumb question. Put your ego aside. Ask all the questions you can so you can learn and make your cases stronger and better. Absolutely. We're all in this together. We're all fighting the same cause, whether or not we're working together or not. So it's an excellent point and something I literally intend on doing about an hour from now. Um, so my trial tip of the week is don't look past your motions and limit it. Sometimes I see motions eliminate from other firms and I'm shocked by how few areas they end up covering and the limited scope that they're trying to address. Um, in my opinion, motions eliminate should be addressed many different aspects of trial. They should be trying to exclude the evidence that you believe is not relevant or should be excluded for whatever reason. And also to admit evidence you believe is going to be contested and something that you want um, to get into evidence and have that ruling done before uh, you start uh, picking a jury. Um, in addition, especially in a venue like Cook County, where you don't really know your trial judge, it's a good way to kind of get a feel for them, how they're going to approach the case, and you know what their thoughts on some of the key evidentiary issues in the case are. So in my opinion, you can't have too many motions in limine. You know, it's important to get things admitted and excluded outside the presence of the jury so you don't have that kind of a, a messy objection in front of the jury. You want to keep that behind closed doors as much as possible so the jury can focus on the facts at issue and not, you know, lawyers arguing with each other. Yeah, they don't want to see us argue. It doesn't engender any sort of great view of lawyers. It just makes them think more of what they already think about lawyers, which is not very good. Your point's fantastic. There are not enough people, I'm guilty of this as well, there are not enough people who are using motions in limine to get their evidence in 
before the trial. Um, that's a great, great use of motions and lemonade that I don't see a lot of people doing. It's creative. It's very smart. And I think it will make all of your trials, my trials so much easier. I'm going to start using that right away. As a specific example, in the last nursing home case I tried, I did a motion to eliminate to get the federal regulations applicable to nursing homes admitted into evidence as a a standard. And I I put together a whole brief that I'm not going to get into, uh, but it really kind of helped the judge because the judge, this was their first nursing home trial. So I was kind of educating him on some of the case law and some of the standards applicable to the nursing home facilities that we were dealing with. And I think it really helped kind of, you know, prime him for the rest of the evidence in the case and how we were going to approach it. It's a great way to make the judge's job so much easier uh, and, and, you know, and make sure that the judge likes you a little bit. <laughs> that couldn't, couldn't hurt. Can't and, hurt. No, and can't that's, hurt. No, that's our episode for today. Uh, Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at On Trial Podcast. Please also rate and leave us your feedback on iTunes, wherever you download your podcasts. And until next time, we'll see you on trial.